make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. So welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. I'm Kaya Alexander, your host really stoked to be here today with Reed Martin. Let me tell you about Reed. Reed's the author of The Real Truth, Everything You Didn't Know You Need to Know About Making an Independent Film, which is available in paperback from Amazon, digitally on Kindle, from Apple eBooks, for those of you with an iPhone or iPad. And listen, I'm reading the book. It's fantastic. And you should definitely go check it out. You're going to love this interview today. Reed's a former adjunct professor at NYU Stern School of Business and Columbia Business School, where he taught a second year MBA course entitled Film Marketing, Distribution, and Exhibition that focused on the business and marketing side of the industry. Previously, Reed has worked as the director of marketing at the Independent Pictures, the New York-based production company of Carrie Woods, who produced the dance hall comedy Swingers. And he's a graduate of the MBA management training program at 20th Century Fox Film in Los Angeles, where he focused on international marketing and distribution. Welcome, Reed. Thanks for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. I've been loving your book. Oh, thank you so much. That's great. I think there's a lot of great origin stories that, you know, that are that are sort of evergreen. And uh, I think they, uh, they're designed to inspire and, uh, you know, uh, frame everything that people have heard previously in a new light. So well researched as well. And I love all the analogies and all the stories that you reference in the book. And uh, it is interesting to realize that filmmakers will make the same mistakes over and over and over. And here you've like cataloged them here. Don't make these mistakes. Right. Well, it's funny you say that because I had a conversation at Sundance years ago. I think it was 2003 with with uh, Ted Hope. And he said, well, no one could ever write a book like this because it would have to be as big as the Manhattan phone directory. And I had <laughs> 504 pages. It's getting there. It's almost there. I tried to catalog as many as possible. But um, to your point, I really tried to emphasize that even the biggest names in the industry, people who you know and look up to, have made, have sort of stubbed their toes on the same kind of in some cases big, in some cases small, uh, mistakes on the road to, to becoming household names. And so if you can get out ahead of some of those, or all of them ideally, then you have a clearer path to, uh, to the career that you want and to the film festival that you might want to showcase your work in. Yeah, one of the stories that was top of mind for me, and also upon uh, reading a bio, is, this, is Swingers. And the story that you tell about swingers and how they could have raised more money and they would have been waiting around for years to get the rest of the money to make that movie. But they made it for, was it 200000 That's right. Yeah, they made it for 200000 Will you tell us about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Swingers, obviously, the, the cast of that film, you know, John Favreau is doing uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi now and all the other, and the Mandalorian. All so, other so, amazing. Yeah, I know. So he's, and then the Lion <laughs> King. Everything I mean, he's he touches just, is like, cool. It's, it's a, unbelievable. I mean, from going from that that hilarious phone call, which you can watch on YouTube, uh, the disastrous Swingers uh, phone call, to, to these heights is really uh, an inspiration for us all. But, uh, you know, the story of Swingers is instructive because... The director, Doug Lyman, a lot of people forget that it was directed by Doug Lyman, who went on to, um, you know, to to make uh, uh, Edge of Tomorrow and, of course, you know, a, a lot of other films, the firstborn film. Um, you know, he had this theory that, um, you know, $200,000 is not a lot to make a feature film. But if you if someone showed up with a, you know, with an attache case that had $200,000 in it, you'd say, oh, my God, you know, where'd you get all that money? So, in fact, it is it is enough to, to, to make a film and that, you know, they had thought about making swingers at a higher budget, uh, you know, much glossier. But then they might have been waiting around, you know, going to that one more investor, you know, trying to find, you know, that one sort of. Uh, anchor tenant, if you will, or angel investor who would put in a million or so, but they just decided to go for it to strike while the iron was hot. And, you know, it didn't really need to be made for any more than that. Um, and, and, and the result is, you know, obviously it's, it launched the careers of, uh, of so many of Vince Vaughn and, and John Favreau and so many others. So. And they, and they were so creative because they ran out of money for the lighting kit, right? So they just went and got those high watt bulbs, <laughs> ordinary lights. We're just going to make this movie. Let's do it. You know, I think in one case that was by design that they were going to do that and see if that would work. Um, it's not you, you don't want to use regular household lighting, but to get, you know, you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's or somewhere and get, you know, really high watt 200 watt bulbs. You might not want to get the LEDs that they sell today. You might want to today, you might want to get those the traditional light bulbs as they have them. But but yes, you can use uh, available light. And if, you know, if anyone tells you that you can't, you can remind them that, uh, that you know, Stanley Kubrick has shot by candlelight um, in, in a couple of his, his films. And so he, available light is definitely possible if you've got the right camera technique. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really interesting about, which we can circle back on, is that uh, Doug Lyman also created a business plan, and that's also a question that a lot of folks have. And so that's one of the things that The Real Truth covers. I tried to cover for the lay filmmaker and also for the film student, you know, what are these sort of blind spots that um, might not have been covered because they're either too general or there's an assumption that everybody knows about them, or maybe people think, well, you don't really need a business plan. Somebody might ask for one, but sort of all the areas that that I cover include, you know, music rights, uh, music, um, you know, clearances for for logos and other things, and then also uh, contracts and uh, from everything from you know from 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 the first day of filming and pre-production into exhibition and selling the the film at a festival. Talk to us about some of those mistakes that you see the filmmakers make again. again. I mean. You know, from the get-go, and I know we have a lot of writers uh, in your taking your class. One of the things I think is like the most important, and it predates the you know the filming of the project, is that, and this kind of drives me crazy. Uh, it's one of those sort of things that I fixate on. Um, people think that they don't need to register their screenplays with the Library of Congress. They think they'll save, you know, 
$30 or $40 by getting a WGA registration. And it's the same thing. They say, what's the difference? What's the big deal? No, nothing bad is going to happen. They think nothing bad is going to happen to them, although they may have heard some stories, you know, some ghost stories uh, in Hollywood. And I think the thing is, it is really important to register your first draft because you have to prove the inception point of the idea. So even the rough, not so much a beat sheet or a treatment, but if you have a first finished draft of your script, it is crucially important to register that one with the Library of Congress because a, a, a at www.copyright.gov, I think it's like $65 or $70 now. It may be a little bit more. It goes up by like $5 every year. Even if it's $80, it's worth it um, because you want to be able to show the evolution of your script over time with subsequent iterations of it. And you also want to show that you know you had the finished draft when you, you know, when you finished it on X date. And it's really important. And the issue is not so much that your script is going to get poached, although people, you know, are often emailing their script all over town as an attachment, as an unlocked Word file, not even as a locked PDF. Um, but the other issue is that, you know, if you have a co-writer that comes on or if you have a director that comes on and they make some changes to the screenplay, they may want a co-writing credit. You know, when something gets into a festival, you know, it's all fun and it's all like, let's put on a play until there's real money involved. And so once, you know, things are really happening and people are, you know, sort of jousting for credits and things like that, it can be a tricky thing to navigate. And so you want to sort of trust but verify. You want to make sure that you have that early copyright registration. It is not the same as WGA in that the WGA registration does not provide for statutory uh, damages, or it also does not allow an attorney to take your case on contingency. A WGA registration only allows you to enter into arbitration, which is, as anyone knows about arbitration, can often be a dead end for an aggrieved uh, plaintiff because it's just up to the arbiter and you have to agree to, to the outcome. So uh, it is critically important, and uh, I just wanted to make that distinction from the outset. Some of the other problems and issues that, that I cover in The Real Truth, everything you didn't know you need to know about making an independent film, it, you know, there, it runs the gamut. And I don't want people to listen to me and just sort of say, well, it's on my vouch, which is why I interviewed people like Doug Lyman and Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan and, uh, you know, uh, Werner Herzog, Barbara Koppel, um, you know, just a, a real uh, sort of a lot of icons from the the early days of the of the independent film world. Um, so and and so the thing is, I basically I mentioned something uh, a, a problem that people have, and then I have the you know the uh, producer or the director, uh, you know, talk about how it happened to them. And so you're not really listening to what's my opinion. Everything is sort of uh, sort of footnote, not even footnoted. I mean, the stories, the anecdotes that are told are told by people in the industry who everybody would recognize. So that's, um, you know, that's really the most important part. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of the mistakes you mentioned in your book is not raising all the money, but raising part of the money or enough to get you to post and then having to raise the rest of the money. And you brought up some interesting points about how that can derail your project and even your early investors. Will you speak to that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that investors, this is a good book also for people who are going to invest in an independent film, because one of the ways that you can see if a filmmaker uh, is for real or if they know what they're talking about is if they have a deferred music budget in their budget. Uh, or if they assume, if you ask them, well, who's, if you, if somebody asks you, you know, well, who's going to cover your music? And they say, well, you know, we're going to get festival clearance and then whoever acquires the film will pick up the music rights. That actually doesn't happen. That doesn't happen anymore. It may happen in one or two cases that are edge cases, but it really is not a thing. And unfortunately, what can happen is, what can happen is the acquiring distrib- distributor will say, uh, okay, you have to clear all the music. And so all of the acquisition costs that might have gone to the investors ends up going to clear the film for music rights. And because, you know, people's eyes are too big for the stomach, rather than finding the next, you know, the next Laura Veers or the next Elliot Smith or, you know, just, just anyone who you might who you might like um, to do all the, the music or even just a friend who's a musician and giving them a break, people, you know, people want to include, you know, mainstream hits in their film, even in the end title credits, you know, there's a, the, the classic uh, anecdote is about somebody who wants to put David Bowie's heroes in the end title credits, and they will not budge from that. And that's a million dollar track to clear. Um, there's just no, there's no friend uh, discount as people might think. <laughs> um, and so that's the problem. That's one of the things where all the money can get eaten up. Another thing is where people think, well, they eat into their post-production budget because they say, well, we need a crane day or we need this or we need that. And so they will, will eat up their, their post budget um, on production just to get the film shot. And then they'll need completion funds. And then another, essentially they have to give away the rights to the film um, either piece by piece or in total just to get completion funds to be able to get through post. And so that's another problem where people aren't budgeting uh, appropriately or effectively. I mean, if you have something, if you have a talky, you know, sort of comedy, again, going back to swingers, that's something that you might be able to pull off. But if you've got something with a lot of locations or, or just these days, you know, if you're, if there, there, there can be complications that, that make the budget uh, go much higher, but a lot of people don't budget for posts or they don't think it's important or they haven't, where it really becomes a problem is they haven't worked, they haven't tested their digital workflow. So they haven't done like a little short film version or I, I advocate shooting a trailer for your film and just to test your digital workflow. And because they have either they're using some kind of exotic um, editing program or some strange HD camera or something like that. There can, or even something that's like an 8K. Suppose you got a free 8K camera. You know, knocking it down to 4K can can be a problem. Just some kind of exotic, uh, you know, work HD workflow. If they haven't done that, you can you can end up with an extraordinary cost along the way that can cut into either your production budget or your post budget. Right, and that movie really gets made in post. 
Right. I mean, that's where a lot of the magic happens. Um, and so if you can't afford to do that, you can just be dead in the water. You can miss your festival deadline. You can uh, just end up stuck because your investors won't put in any additional funds because it would dilute their investment. You may be contractually prevented from diluting their investment with, you know, with additional funds. Um, and or or if you have a completion bond, uh, which some in some cases uh, people do these days, you may be fired off the project. I mean that happens as well. So they may have somebody else complete the project and not you, the inspiration, the director, the writer, the person who was who uh, who ins- was the inspiration for the for the for the project. When I was working at Inferno, we financed a movie called The Good Night that most people haven't heard of, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, Penelope Cruz, Danny DeVito, Martin Freeman, Simon Simon Pegg. And um, it was the first time feature director, and they just didn't get enough coverage uh, during during filming. And then in the midst of that production, watching the dailies, it looked like it was going to be okay. But by the time production wrapped and all those actors went on to other movies, it went to post and none of the editors could cut it together. And we went through a bunch of teams of editors just trying to get a finished product that could get picked up for distribution. And ultimately it did not get picked up for distribution. My boss poured in a million dollars of his own money to try to save the movie. He couldn't, and it did not get picked up for distribution. And uh, I think it's went straight to VOD at some point. I think it's like buried on Amazon somewhere. But if you just realize like, oh my God, it was a great script. It was amazing cast. It had so many elements to it, but just that whole, you know, transition between production post not going well and getting hitched um, can can kill a project that can kill a beloved project. And the thing is, these pro- these problems are avoidable. It's not like um, this is the first time this has happened. And that's what I really tried to set out to do in The Real Truth by talking to people like Kim Pierce or Christine Vachon or these sort of icons of, you know, of, of the, the indie film heyday. Um, to find out, you know, what are the things that just happen time and time again? You know, Tom Bernard, the co-president of Sony Classics, just has so many stories about, you know, over and over again, these these are same issues that always come up and can derail an acquisition, even, even after the acquisition is is underway, if they sort of uncover some sort of deal breaker, and there are, there are a bunch, um, there are these sort of landmines on the road to Sundance, if you will, um, you know, that can break a deal. And so you I was can, thinking off-ramps, but you went straight for <laughs> yeah, for landmines. It could be landmines, <laughs> or it actually could be like, I don't know if you've gone up to Deer Valley with those windy, <laughs> twisty roads. You know, I don't, some of those roads don't have guard, don't literally don't have guardrails along the icy, um, you know, highway up there. And so you could really careen off the, the side of it. And, and, and it's a great metaphor, not a great metaphor, but it's an apt metaphor for what can happen uh, to a project down in the valley as well. Perilous path. Yes, it can be. So when a filmmaker is raising money for their film, I've heard a few different paths recommended. One is as you get the money, put it in an escrow account. And the other is, oh, you can get an LOI from financiers and use the LOI to raise more money with other financiers saying, oh, we've got this, you know, got these pieces committed. Uh, what's your philosophy? Well, one of the things I want to discuss with um, that happens to people And um, it's interesting, you know, people a lot, in my experience, actually, personally, and this is, I've heard this anecdote a couple of times, filmmakers will sort of pin their dreams on one sort of rich person that they know, one sort of anchor tenant. And a lot of times that person may have commitments or may not be able to just, you know, suddenly cut a check for, you know, $100,000 or a million dollars. And so this expectation that, you know, well, I know this one person 
who's going to finance the whole thing out of their ATM card because they can, they may have covenants or, you know, other, again, other family obligations that prevent them from doing so. And so it's, it's a mistake to sort of put all your chips, you know, put all your eggs in one basket um, with that one single person who you think is going to be the hookup. You really have to approach it as if that person is not going to invest. And a lot of people who are wealthy are savvy investors who do not like high-risk investments, and that's because that's why they're still wealthy in some cases. Um, and so they may not uh, be willing to, um, to, to get on board. Another issue is that they may just, you know, they may see it as a cynical thing. Like a lot of people who are asked for, for, for funds for other things or for investments, a lot of the time they may sort of say, oh, really? Like, uh, excuse me, like, oh, you too, you're at like somebody who they thought was sort of a friend and who wasn't going to hit them up. And they may be put off for that reason as well. So that can be a really delicate, uh, negotiation in that, in that regard, as far as financing goes, I mean, you can get a letter of intent from an actor who really loves a script. And then from there, you can, obviously you can get production funds, not so much anymore with international, uh, pre-sales that, that is another thing where people have a sort of a misdated or have a misidentified, uh, you know, idea of how these things happen. It used to be that you could take a, a letter of commitment from an actor and, and then, you know, use their uh, fame and, and recognition overseas to get, you know, to cobble together the, the film's production funds overseas um, from over from international festivals. That's not so much of a thing anymore. Um, to, to, to your question, you can, however, you can get investment from organizations and from, uh, you know, if there's, if there's a uh, public, uh, organization or a 501c3 that may have a, you know, may have, um, your film could actually serve as, uh, you know, as a good sort of, uh, calling card for that particular issue, whether it's cancer or maybe in the case of CODA recently, you know, with, with sign language and, um, you know, with certain populations that would obviously, you know, benefit from more people learning about, about an issue, that, that's one avenue or one path to get a production funds, probably more so for documentary than for feature films, but it can right. be. I was thinking of that, like with fiscal sponsors who will right. do, get behind a lot of documentaries in the social sure. impact space. Absolutely. And then you, and then there's also news organizations. I mean, people forget that the, um, you know, the, that, that Orca film, um, about Tilikum was actually bought by CNN. Are you and willing? So, oh, yeah, no, no, you're, thinking yeah, of really Black, you're thinking of Blackfish. Blackfish, excuse me. Yeah, exactly. Blackfish. And so people don't realize that there are other avenues, you know, maybe a news outlet or discovery channel. In some cases, that's, that's again, that's with documentary, but um, there can be, there can be in certain instances, um, you know, a, a narrative feature that can get funds from, from outside of the box, uh, organ, you know, I, funding sources that are outside the box rather. Um, another thing, I mean, you know, creating, um, creating a GoFundMe page or an Indiegogo page. The, the challenge with those is that you almost need a financing effort to finance the financing effort. And this is one of the things I talk about in The Real Truth. The issue is that it actually costs money. You have to pay your rent, obviously. You have to pay your expenses and your health insurance while you're doing the fundraising. And so you almost have to do an initial seed round of financing so that you can then have the time to go out and shake the trees and have a coffee with people and tell them about the project and pitch and do all these things and maybe fly to the opposite coast to meet with 
with with investors or with actors or to go, attend an international film festival. And that's really important because what can happen is people can be sort of chasing the sun, if you will, chasing the sundown because they're basically have they have money coming in um, to finance the film, but then they're burning through it. Sorry, let me. They're burning through it, unfortunately, as a result of of having to finance their financing effort. So that's one thing to kind of split those two things and strategically say, you know, I need I need some. I'm going to have to cover these costs, including your rent. I mean, that's a real cost. You might have a you might have one room in your apartment that's a production office, or one room in your house that's your production office. But you you have to include these costs in your own calculation of what it's going to take. And then also I would recommend that you double it because it always takes a lot longer to raise the funds than people realize. They think, oh, it's just going to happen, snap, snap, snap. And it just doesn't, it can, it's not instant coffee and it can take, it can take a really long time to raise production funds. Yeah. Having that contingency on the budget is really important and you have to live. And it is a full-time job finding financing often in the indie space. So you have to allow for that. And it's tough. I mean, the barrier to entry is really high uh, for a lot of indie filmmakers who'd love to be making movies and just find it's so uh, it's so cost prohibitive. That's right. I mean, even with the new cameras, I mean, even if you are you know shooting something on an iPhone, so you know you know 4K on an on an iPhone 13 or an iPhone 12, um, you know there are some unavoidable costs. So while the costs of production have gone down, in many cases um, there are just unavoidable costs like post-production or um, just some you know unforeseen you know uh, costs that you might run into, and you do need that contingency to be able to not be just you know if, if you're cutting everything so razor close. And I have three budgets. I have three budgets in the back of the real truth for for one hundred thousand, for one million, and for five million, which which actually used to be kind of the breakpoints going forward. I mean, these days there are films that you know that that are made independently financed films that are made for five million, ten million, twenty million. So that's not unheard of either, especially when you add cast. Um, but you do have to have a contingency for a, that's that's more than just a rainy day, um, so you can get you know get through production and get through post. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking that uh, thoughtfully is really important from the from the beginning, so that you don't get caught midway going, "Oh my God, you know what do we do? What do we do now?" I mean, I have a marketing a background, digital marketing for you know decade as a CMO and other positions. I always joke that anybody who says, "Well, I can make my can make my movie on my iPhone for." you know, for, uh, for four grand. I'm like, great. Well, make sure you have your hundred thousand dollar marketing budget on top of that four grand. Right. Who's going to hear about your movie? Like that is the most important. And for what I see often overlooked, uh, column in your budget, it's like, you've got to have some marketing budget or else nobody's going to hear what you've done. And, and that's hard because you're going to go into festivals and you can't make the mistake of thinking, Oh, well, the festival's going to promote my movie for me because they don't. That's a great point, Kaya. And the other thing is not so, not only just a marketing budget. You know, you can't just get your film publicized by stapling, you know, lost dog flyers all around Park City. You need much more than that. And these days, it's got to be much more sophisticated. I mean, you have to be you have to wear many hats and one of them is a digital marketer whether that's starting the telling the story of your film uh on facebook or tiktok or other platforms keeping a diary maybe on tiktok of your production i mean you have to start the ball rolling for the marketing really 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 early um you know and one of the things also 
you know, you have to have distribution costs. You may need to be able to produce a 35 millimeter print for whatever reason. That's $100,000 right there. Um, you know, you may have to have some digital, uh, you know, some digital formats to be able to submit to certain festivals. They may want a range of formats, and that can be a huge cost that people haven't allocated for. But the marketing cost is really critical because a lot of distributors, if they can't see how to market it, they won't acquire it. They want to know that the director has an idea, the producer has an idea for what the poster should look like. What is your one sheet going to be? Can you enunciate what this film is about in a single image? Have you had on-set photography so you can create that image? You can't get your, you may not be able to get your cast back together to, to sort of mock up a photo or just to use headshots for what they call the three floating heads or the five floating heads. That's not a compelling one sheet or movie poster. You have to have compelling on-set photography. So you have to hire a professional photographer. You don't want to have just your cousin or or a friend of a friend doing it. Um, and you have to have them for more than one day so you can be able to capture that image that's going to that's gonna tell the story. A lot of people have cut the cord. They don't watch movie trailers anymore because they're not watching TV. Obviously, a lot of people aren't going to the movies these days to watch movie trailers. And so still photography and posters have a much bigger impact and importance today than, than they even used to in the last 10 or, or 15 years. So that's an absolutely critical point. And, and also, you may want to go on the road. I mean, you may have to, to create a critical mass for your film. Say you have a film that would appeal to people, to the families of enlisted service personnel. Um, you may want to have screenings, you know, around the country at, at military bases or in bookstores or in some other category where you're traveling state to state. That can cost, you know, $500 to fly to a different state. You have to stay the night, obviously, hotel costs. You know, you may need to rent a projector or even buy uh, an Epson, you know, really powerful uh, 4K projector. So that's another cost. I mean, all of these things to create a critical mass and you have to do the marketing as well. It's not enough to say, okay, I'm going to leave it in the hands of the acquiring studios uh, marketing department because they also may come up with something that doesn't actually position your film correctly. It doesn't position the story or position the, the nuance or the subtlety that you want to get across. And they may just be going for some sort of commercial approach that is even anathema or offensive to the actors who are in the film and to the production team. So oh, I've heard so some want- stories about that happening. Right, exactly. So you want to make sure that you're that you've got a you've got uh, you know compelling uh, range or spectrum of of possible marketing approaches, and that you know that that's a really important thing. You can there's a lot of you know if you want to if you don't have any ideas of how to you're not a graphic designer, you can just pick up some some books of of, of contemporary art or album covers. Album covers are a great place to look in terms of inspiration for, for a movie poster. Or, you know, look up, you know, a book about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, about MoMA or the Whitney or, or your favorite, you know, LACMA or your favorite uh, museums. And then you can find some ideas to be inspired by. But don't, don't, you don't want to walk into an acquisition meeting with no ideas of how to position or market your film. I have a fun case study for you, actually. Before we jumped on today, we are talking about my friend, Mike Metavoy. And the reason I ended up meeting him and, and circling with him was because of some digital marketing that I did 
for a group of filmmakers in the docu space. And it was so funny because it started with Dr. Pedram Shojai, who had doctor money, and he went and made a movie called Vitality. And Vitality was a movie he made for $100,000. He'd never made a movie before. And all he wanted was to end the redundancy in in his practice of telling people over and over, eat your vegetables, get good sleep, get exercise. So he made a movie about it. And being a good digital marketer, he's like, I'm just going to put it out online as a lead magnet. So he put the whole movie up online for free, like on on, basically on a webpage, drove traffic to it from Facebook ads, Insta ads. And in like a a two week window of launch, he had like hundred thousand people opt in to watch his movie. And all of a sudden he has a hundred thousand eyeballs on his movie and he monetized it on the back end because he had things to sell them like supplements and courses and things like that. And off his hundred thousand dollar document, it was, it was a documentary. That one was a film, a feature. He then does seven figures on the back end and who hears about it? Netflix, Netflix calls him and says, Hey, we, you know, we want to acquire your movie. Uh, let us distribute it for a year. So he has gone on to have a really huge movie career now because he understands how to market just via digital marketing by running ads and identifying who's the audience for this movie. And you talk about that in your book, thinking about who's the audience for my movie, who's going to want to see this? How can I talk to them early so that they can opt in and say, yeah, I I definitely want to see this movie, even as you're you know, getting ready to even make the movie, thinking about that. Well, that, that's a really good point, Kai. And that's one, <clears throat> pardon me, that's one uh, avenue that, that people can take if their story might lend itself to that, or if the adjacent subject matter might lend itself to that. I mean, you might use the funds that you raise if you're not raising the budget that you'd like for your feature. It's possible to make a documentary about that subject and then use that as a lead-in or as an on-ramp or possibly even a documentary that is the sort of the documentary version of the feature film in the same way that that uh, like a podcast like Serial could be made into a feature. Um, so that's that's another way, that's another path. And then you're also using the documentary as sort of a calling card or a proof of concept to show people, you know, this is what we're going for. This is why it's an important topic. It has this built-in audience who are stakeholders who are, you know, who find this topic, you know, absolutely, you know, very critical. They're, these are audiences that we can reach because of organizations that we can either partner with or reach out to. Absolutely. So we have sort of a built-in audience. Uh, and, and also, you know, in some cases, it, it may not even be for a theatrical distribution, but if there's something where people want uh, a keepsake from the film, you know, or they may might buy it as a gift for someone in their family who is affected by, say, a certain health issue or who is, um, you know, has a certain beloved topic that that is near and dear to their hearts, it could you could generate, um, you know, sales that way, either online you know, through uh, rental or through purchase on on iTunes or uh, you know on on Amazon um, Amazon Video as well, or you know historically in some cases it, from a merch table. If you want to go really DIY from a merch table selling uh, DVDs. I mean, you know, DVD and physical spinning media is not uh, the is not the market for it. Is not what it once was, but that is still an avenue for people who want to own a copy of your film or to give it to somebody as a, as a gift or a present. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we were seeing that happening with the, the sales pages that we put at the end of these free screenings where people were buying the movie that they just watched on DVD. There's still a whole portion of America and Americans who have DVD players. They're still watching DVDs. They want to own and possess the physical version, which is we were stunned as marketers. We're like, there's no way anyone's going to buy DVDs. But when we gave them that option, it was like, hey, look, here's this revenue stream that exists that we were really surprised was still active. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. And there are companies that can handle the fulfillment. You don't have to yes. do it all yourself. There are companies that you can partner with that yeah. I discuss also in The Real Truth that can handle all of the ordering and the fulfillment. And you don't have to post it all on Amazon yourself and have, you know, and be a, you know, a, a personal seller, um, a mom and pop uh, salesperson or selling it through eBay. There are, there are fulfillment houses that will handle the printing and the packaging, the pick, pack and ship, if you will, of, of your film. So that's something that can also streamline that process. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a question that I'm sure you get asked a lot as an expert in the indie film space. And I know it's on the minds of all of my audience who are listening right now, which is where do you find the money? Where do you find it, Reed, in the indie film space? You know, that's the thing. It's tough because when there's a recession, like uh, people are in you know, the news is hinting at maybe on the horizon right now, people are tightening their belts. They're uncertain. They don't want to part with their funds because, you know, they, they, they're not sure of where things are going to go or whether they might need access to that, those funds. And then when the market is roaring, as it was, you know, fairly recently, yeah. they want to have all their money in the market because the returns are so great or the percentage returns are so high. And so they don't want to part with any of their capital because, you know, they could rather than having they're making money assume, on their money. Right, exactly. <laughs> rather than just assuming a loss, which they have to, if someone's a qualified investor, they have to essentially sign that yes, they're they, they're able to lose uh, this investment in its entirety. So that can be difficult as well. What I found personally is it's sort of always the it's never the people you expect. It's always the people who are, you know, the the humble people that you know, those family members or the the friends that you have. Those are the people that are going to actually give you the shirt off their back. It's kind of surprising, but it's not. It's it's very rarely that one person who is sort of, uh, you know, not to be crass, but, you know, somebody who, who's, who's of means or who, you know, who's that one rich person that, you know, who's going to swoop in and make everything happen. Um, it is, it is sometimes people who just have a personal stake in you. I think one of the things you can do for that seed financing is to be selling yourself. And as entrepreneurs, as screenwriters and directors and producers, all of the people listening here and all the people who take your class, they really are entrepreneurs. And the product that they're selling is not necessarily their script or their movie or their dreams. It's really themselves. They're selling themselves. And what they have to get people to be convinced of is that they are worth betting on. So in a lot of ways, what you're, what you're sort of selling or the sizzle, if you will, is not so much a trailer that you might make, which is important. It's really important to be able to show your vision and to have, you know, to show people that you can make a short film that's, that has a narrative structure and that's compelling and that can, and that the story can be told that it's not a jumble, but also that, that people should believe in you. That's one of the things that you have to, that people forget about that they themselves 
are worth betting on. And so you don't want to show up to a meeting with an investor, you know, just you've just woken up out of bed and you haven't shaved and like, you know, you're just sort of a ragamuffin. And, you know, you, you or because, you know, that's the sort of the uniform of the artist. Yes. Okay. To some degree. But you may have to, in some cases, you may have to put on a jacket or you may have to meet somebody in a fancy restaurant or you may have to show that, uh, you know, that you have your, your, your act together and that you can enunciate the vision of your project and why you yourself are worth betting on um, in, a, in a concise, clear, and crisp way. This is a space that I'm really interested in because it's the crossover between Hollywood and Silicon Valley because we've been borrowing best practices from Silicon Valley for a little while now, which includes pitch deck, sales materials for these types of projects. And also it's pitching. It's how you are delivering. What? Tell the story. Tell us the story. And who are you in the midst of that? And of course, in Silicon Valley, when you invest in a company, you know that those founders are inevitably going to have to pivot, right? If they are, they're, they're possibly going to take the company a different direction. So you are investing in those leaders of that company. And in, you know, for the film, you're hoping that the script is, you know, together that you're like, okay, great. We know this vision. We know the road ahead. Uh, but one of the things that's even higher level that I talk about a lot in the entertainment business school is branding. And that's what you're touching on here, because if they're investing in you for who you are, for your vision, they're also investing in you as a brand. You mentioned John Favreau earlier, the guy, his name, he's a brand, right? And they all are the big ones. All are Spielberg and Issa Rae and Chanda Rhimes, they're, they're absolutely epic visionary storytellers. And you have a deep felt sense of who they are as it comes through each of the um, movies and television shows that they're making. Well, that's a that's a really important aspect of this of this effort that people people overlook. I mean, not to sort of get I mean, obviously, he's in the news a lot recently. But in terms of some of the other directors and producers that I focus on, uh, one of the ones that I think is the most important and the most instructive is Eva Klodner, who produced Boys Don't Cry and Kim Pierce, the director, and who who are interviewed extensively in The Real Truth. And, and, and their uh, experience is used as a case study sort of woven throughout several chapters. Yeah, it went on um, to win an Oscar and everything. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, they cover a, a lot of the things that, that, that you just talked about and know, sort of knowing when, uh, when is, the, is the time to either perhaps make a short film version that can then go on, which Boys Don't Cry originally was a short uh, that was accepted to a festival. I mean, there are many examples, actually, of short films that then went on to, um, to, to become feature films. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite is one example that comes to mind. I think 500 Days of Summer is another one. What, ha what can happen is if you have a festival screening of a short, you may have a producer or a financier come up and say, do you have these, 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 uh, these characters are compelling. Do you have a, you know, a feature script version of this? Or, you know, how soon would it take you to, to create one? I mean, I, you want to have one under your arm, obviously, or in a trunk somewhere. But um, that's another route that, that can be... Um, can be uh, fruitful for people. But again, to, to the point about, about the marketing, it really is important to, be, to know about film financing. It's important to know about the marketing effort. It's important to know about post. And those are all, you know, in the 15 chapters that I cover. Also digital distribution. I mean, that's the one thing for independent filmmakers today that we haven't talked about exhibition yet or distribution. I mean, there are fewer people going to, th going to theaters these days. I mean, maybe Top Gun is, you know, Maverick is going to bring people back to theaters uh, or it may, it, it may just 
just be sort of a one-off of nostalgia that, that, that people are, are indulging in, but it's not sort of the heyday that it used to be where you had people going to the Lemley Sunset Five or the Angelica Theater in New York, you know, for, for every weekend to see what, what's on offer. Um, so you have to know about streaming deals. You have to know what your other possibilities are in terms of distribution, you know, all the different, whether it's Moby or Hulu or, you know, all the sort of the range of other streamers that are available, maybe even streamers that might specifically be interested in particular topics. You should know what the constellation of films that a certain distributor or streamer has put out. You know, you want to be able to create a range of comparables, which is the performance, which is like the budget versus performance for a certain uh, certain films that are similar, similar in genre or similar in topic or similar in their emphasis to the film that you're making so that you can say, you know, films in this genre or films covering this topic have been successful in the past and here's a range. You also want to include in your projections, you know, everybody sort of focuses on the outlier, the big, huge, you know, and then they say, well, if we can just make 10% of what this, you know, huge monster outlier made will be set. Um, in many cases, you want to include what a possible disappointment or a wipeout is because that'll show investors that you have a realistic, sober, vision of what the range of possibilities are and that you're not all sort of Pollyannish and pie in the sky as to what the outcome of your of your film might be. And then another thing that I emphasize in The Real Truth is just sort of these misperceptions that people have from watching old episodes of Entourage or even going back to Robert Altman's The Player. In many cases, um, there is no, for screening, for, for streamers, excuse me, the acquisition cost, they say the deal is the deal. The acquisition price that is paid by a streaming service, that's it. There are no residuals. And so there is that's no right. sort of, there is no follow-up revenue stream. You might get a little bit more upfront, but that's it. That's right. There may be a premium based on whether it's Netflix or Amazon or, or some other uh, acquirer, but there are no sort of, you know, regular checks coming in for residuals to make your investors whole. And so you, you can't go to your investors who may be sophisticated or who certainly can Google such things or may just they may just they may just know themselves. And you can't say, oh, well, you know, we're going to make the money back in other venues. Or we're going to make the money back in in separate, you know, whether it's airline, you know, uh, in-flight distribution or DVD or all these other uh, ancillary ancillary waterfall venues, which are no longer either viable or they're just not possible because you've sold worldwide rights to a, to a particular acquisition studio. Do you have any intel into the market percentages right now as to how much of what is getting bought is acquisition in the, from the indie space versus original content, especially with some of these big streamers? You know, I think qualitatively, you know, it, the one thing that's happening now is that qualitatively, uh, this, you know, the emphasis has, is going up significantly. It's no longer enough just to have a film. That's, you know, that's, that's 90 minutes long. And, you know, that tells a, a compelling story. You know, you may have to cast up, you may have to shoot on a better, uh, you know, uh, medium than 4k, maybe that's 8k or some, or maybe you're using, maybe you go, you want to do things old school and shoot in, uh, you know, super 16 or even 35. So you can't count that out. Um, but qualitatively, it is just not enough to sort of tell your sort of scrappy story these days. As far as the percentage splits go for what is 
being acquired versus what's produced in-house. I mean, I think the thing, I don't know that exact, I don't know, I don't have, I'm not sort of privy to that. There may be an Amazon, I mean, I'm sorry, there may be a variety article that covers what Amazon and Netflix are, 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 are doing. But I think the important piece of this <clears throat> is to note that although at festivals, there are some huge multiples, I mean, Coda was bought by Apple for $25 million, which is just a huge number. I mean, historically, the high side at Sundance, uh, you know, going back several years, might have been Hustle and Flow, which was reported in the press as being acquired for nine million, but in fact, three million of that nine were 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 commitments for future projects. So really, the acquisition price, even though nine million was the high watermark at that time, um, it was really only six. And so, you know, so there are these huge multiples that are launching a thousand ships. And so in some ways it's the best of times because, you know, you can sell an independent film for a huge number. But the problem is it, there's, there's a, in, as there is income inequality everywhere else these days, unfortunately, so too is there in the independent film world where there are these huge, huge acquisitions and then everybody else is left to sort of fend for themselves and to find their own uh, distribution or monetization avenues. Or the joke is, you know, you go home with guitar picks because you cut your 35 millimeter film up into, into you know, celluloid plastic guitar picks. Um, well, they used to say that. They don't say that anymore. But, um, you know, that's that's the problem these days. And so, you know, you want to have that lunatic optimism that's going to allow you to actually have the big dream to make your film and to go for it and to do all these things which require not looking down and to keep your dream alive through the dark times and to have a uh, maybe a CD mix that you're not going to try to put into the film and spend millions of dollars on your music budget, that ins- but that inspires you personally, because that's going to, you know, if you, if you can have the vision for what your end credits are going to be with the song that you dream of, you may not be able to afford it for your film, but it can get you through the dark times that will allow you to get there to get your film made. That's one of the things that I think is so great about The Real Truth is that, yes, okay, it's a couple of years old, but it does have these inspirational um, you know, self-care is sort of advice for self-care. How do you take care of yourself during this time when you're trying to do something almost impossible where your significant other, or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your parents may say, okay, enough already. You know, I think you've, you've kind of gone as far as you can go with this. I mean, you have to be able to be sensible. Yes. You don't want your electricity and your phone service being cut off every month as Kim Pierce talks about in the first chapter, but you do want to be able to, to, to persevere and to prevail. And so that's one of the things you just can't lose sight of. I think the thing, the thing that's the most important though is to recognize that um, at festivals, you know, people get into a festival and they think, okay, now I'm on, I'm on Easy Street, I got into a festival, but that's just the start of it. I mean, typically, historically, only 12 out of 120 or 140 films will get acquired. And then that's, a, that's, you know, that's the top 10% and everybody else has to fend for themselves. So again, you have to know about distribution and exhibition so that you can have a path to getting your film seen and, and monetizing it, hopefully. What, what happens to the films that don't get acquired? At festivals, is there like a film graveyard, or do they go to VOD? What what happens? Well, you know, there is a there is a really good uh, course in Los Angeles. There are two courses that I would recommend if you're in Los Angeles uh, to take that are that are on this. One is Mark Stoloroff's No Budget Film School, which is is a really great course about production and all the things that you that producers, hands-on producers, really need to know. And he actually worked with uh, Chris Nolan on Chris Nolan's first film, Following, which actually predated Memento. Um, and then um, there's also a uh, there's a uh, producer. 
uh, advisor for, for folks who have finished their films in, in LA, Peter Broderick, who's a, a well-known consultant. And, you know, he has some good advice. He has a course as well. And he has some advice on, on um, you know, how you can navigate the sort of the post festival uh, routes to exhibition monetization. It's not so much that there's a film graveyard, but there are avenues for, for exhibition. I mean, in some cases, yes, you know, you can put a film, you know, on YouTube and just, you know, and have it be seen that way. Um, you know, there, there are other avenues where you can, you know, you can monetize content for, for rental. Um, again, there's the, there's that sort of the legacy historical route of, you know, creating uh, a spinning media, whether that's, you know, a DVD or a Blu-ray, um, that you then monetize as a keepsake, um, through, through either an online or, or having, you know, a screening, you know, creating a critical mass through screenings. One of, that's one of the things that people can do. I mean, if you had a film, I'll just use this as an example. If you had a film that might appeal to members of Al-Anon, um, you know, something that, you know, maybe that's an inflection point in your story. Um, you know, you may be able to go to, you know, every Al-Anon meeting there is on one of the coasts or, or nationally. I mean, obviously that's a huge concentration and you may be able to sort of have a dog and pony show and showcase your content that way. And then, you know, gradually bit by bit, build up buzz and word of mouth that may even lead to an acquisition at a later date or that you can just sort of, um, you know, find, uh, you know, find word of mouth interest that might, that might generate uh, some top of mind association or some unaided awareness about your film, which covers a certain topic of interest. You've got a chapter in your book called Your New Best Friend. Tell us who your new best friend is. Right. Your new best friend is the producer rep. And this is somebody, when you have a finished film that's gotten into a festival, you don't want to be the person who is in the festival sort of doing the rough and tumble negotiations to sell your film. As much as people think that they, oh, I got this, you know, I can handle this part. You really don't want to necessarily be that person who's possibly burning a bridge or making, you know, outsized demands or, you know, naming a figure which is unrealistic that people might choke on or asking for residuals first from a streaming service, which there are none. And so a producer rep is somebody who you hire. And there's a, you know, there's a constellation of, of producer reps. Um, a lot of whom are in that chapter, a lot of whom are in the real truth as sources throughout. And so you can reach out to them. They have established companies with websites that you can, and they're also very, they also have their ear to the ground and they also are screening films constantly. They're looking at scripts. And so they, they know what's out there. They know the sort of the constellation of films that are getting into festivals. In some cases, they've seen films before they go to festivals or they've helped with financing in some cases, but there, there are consultants and producer reps who will facilitate the sale of a film at a major festival. And it sort of puts you in a different category if you have a rep. If you go to a festival and you're represented, it puts you in a different category than somebody who just has a, you know, a copy of the digital, the digital file on a on a USB drive or, you know, historically has a 35 millimeter print under their their arm, you know, what they used to call a wet print that you just had, you know, you rushed over uh, to, to the festival. So um, that it just puts you in a different category. It makes you look more for real. It makes you more of a serious uh, contender for, you know, for an acquisition. And so for a lot of reasons, they can also be mentors and they can advise the, you know, the producers. These are very sophisticated, typically very, um, you know, experienced people. 
you don't necessarily talk about in the real truth. You don't necessarily want to go with a producer rep who wants a fee because the, because typically the producer rep is paid on a percentage basis of the sale, which incentivizes them to get the best deal. So a lot of times uh, some filmmakers can fall in with sort of unscrupulous producer reps who ask for finance, who ask for a fee or for money upfront to represent the film. And then you may never see any results because you've already parted with your, your money, or you wouldn't really necessarily be privy to what work they've done on the film's behalf. So you wouldn't be able to know like, well, are they really shaking the trees for you as much as they could or really what's being done to help sell the film before the festival and to help position it in the minds of the acquisition community um, even before the film screens. So these are all things that, these are all important considerations that I cover in the producer rep chapter. Reed Martin, you've been a fascinating guest. Thank you so much for being with me today on the podcast. His book, The Real Truth, and that's R-E-E-L, is available on Amazon and also on Apple. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Kai. It was great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.